0: South of the Mason Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeyville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 209, covering the week of March 16th through March 20th, 2020. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, a new free ebook, The Southern Tradition. Um, so if you've subscribed to our email list before and you had the previous free ebook, Emancipation Hell, we have a new one. And you can go ahead and sign up. Even if you've signed up before, you can get this one. We're actually going to be using a new email client. So a lot of things are going to be changing here in the near future with our webpage and some of the other things. But um, you can get that new free ebook, The Southern Tradition. It's a great book. You can get it in PDF form or you can get it in ebook forms. If you want to use it on your Kindle or other electronic book devices, you can do that. And while we're all sitting home with coronavirus uh, scare, it's a great way to uh, pass the time. So get that new free ebook, The Southern Tradition, by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars also want to remind you that we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, you like the podcast, the website, anything else that we do, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. It will help us continue all of our programs. Also remember that if you like the podcast, share it around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to spread the message and grow our audience organically. And get your Abbeville Institute apparel. If you click on that shop tab at the top of the page or click on the the support tab, I'm sorry, and click on the shop, you will get uh, access to our online web store. Which all that stuff you can still purchase. They're open for business. So if you want to get your Abbeville Institute apparel, uh, t-shirts, hats, golf shirts, fleece, all kinds of great stuff. Just click on that. It'll take you right out to it. And you can buy that material. Okay. So let's talk about the week at the institute. Of course, again, a lot of people are dealing with an interesting situation now. I don't think in most people's lifetime we've seen anything like this. Uh, perhaps if you're old enough to remember polio and some of the polio outbreaks and quarantines and other things at that point. And I, I was talking to uh, Don Livingston the day, and he said he remembered that as a as a child, they would have um, enforced. Quarantines, kind of a stay in place for polio. So that might be the closest that anyone can remember with something like this, unless you've lived somewhere in Asia for a time. Or, But um, we are certainly living in, in, uh, in strange times. But again, infectious diseases have been part of American history and part of world history. We've seen these things before. Yellow fever outbreaks when uh, back in the antebellum period, people will be shuttered in place or businesses would close down to try to stem the tide of yellow fever. Uh, we know the Spanish flu pandemic of the early 20th century was horrible and people would try to shelter in place and do other things. So this is not unprecedented. Of course, we had we had a different economy back then. Uh, more people were self-sufficient. Um, now more people are tied into a service industry and other things. So this is going to be a difficult period of time. And one of the things that I think is interesting about it and Uh, is the local response, state and local response. I think what's happening, and it's something we've been talking about at the Abbeville Institute for years, is federalism. People are starting to think about what can the state and local government do now? And should we be uh, tied into this big federal monstrosity that is going to run the economy straight into the ground? Now, it doesn't mean the states aren't going to do things that are very draconian. And of course, fear is gripping the United States. So uh, that's going to be certainly part of it. But the Federal Reserve is firing everything it has in its arsenal at this particular economic problem. And as people have suggested, it's going to make it a lot worse. So what is the United States going to look like once this is over? We've talked about is America too big? All the things we've discussed uh, on the website for the last five years actually going on six years now. We, It is six years in April. It's been six years we've had the website up and running, the new website with thousands of articles. Everything you've done to contribute to the Institute, Institute if you've done that, has helped produce what we have, which is a virtual online library of Southern thought. I mean, it's, it's a really amazing thing that, that you've helped create with us by your contributions. Whether it's financial, whether it's writing an article, anything that you've done, to help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. But are we seeing that Southern tradition? Are we going to see that Southern tradition in the future become an important part of America and what America means? That's going to be a big question uh, because the local is going to become very important. How do we handle our neighbors, our friends? What do we do with our economy? How do we support each other? These are things that are going to matter. Uh, What about the powers of the states and local governments vis-a-vis the federal authority? These are things that are going to matter. And so none of the articles this week focused on that. We ran business as usual. I dare say that we'll probably have some in the future on this particular situation because that just seems to matter to people now. We're all all starting to think about these things. What is America going to look like in six months from now? What is the world going to look like in six months from now? Particularly since Europe and the European uh, Western civilization has been hit so hard. It's no longer just Asia or some of the um, Asian areas of the world. It's now Western civilization that's confronting this virus. And so how does Western civilization respond? We've seen how Eastern civilization responds. How does Western civilization respond to such a crisis? And frankly, right now, it's uh, it's pretty draconian. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, stay safe, everyone. I mean, this is where your own individual actions are going to matter. Can we get through this with as little loss of liberty as possible or uh, with as little impact to your personal life as possible? We'll see. I hope everyone does stay safe to listen to this podcast and comes out on the other end um, at least fairly well, that they're not so destitute that um, your life has changed forever. And I do I do hope and pray that for everyone um, and that everyone comes out healthy too. Uh, and that you make it through the crisis okay. So we're going to keep doing what we do. We're going to keep going with the website. We're going to keep going with the podcast. Um, and hopefully that offers a reprieve and from the... Doldrums and the boredom that you're going to face in this new health crisis in America. So, let's talk about the articles we had for this week. Um, one of the more interesting, and even though there were some things that I thought were uh, a couple of things I thought were incorrect in the article, but the Tuesday piece entitled Kentucky Hobbits, which is a review of J.R.R. Tolkien's work, and does it apply? the Southern tradition. Is there something to Tolkien in the Southern tradition? What do I mean by that? Can Tolkien, and of course, if you're not familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and you look at those particular works through the lens of the Southern tradition, and you find that it's very much in line with that. I think that when you look at the Shire, and you look at the Hobbits, And where they came from. And I think this is the thing that's always been fascinating about Tolkien. And of course, the Southern tradition and why people like Hellier Belloc would be interested in writing for Who Owns America? Or G.K. Chesterton and how much Chesterton and this rural agrarian life in England, this English countryside, is very much the Southern countryside. How these things are so compatible and if you look at the Shire in all of the works by Tolkien, and you think about this very rural, agrarian, small community, and how important it was and how beautiful it was. And I think this is where, this is the English countryside. It was the English country critique of centralized power, empire, industrialization. I mean, you, you look at the factories that were work building war machines and Lord of the Rings, by the orcs. And you realize what's going on here. I mean, it is an agrarian critique of the world. It's the same thing that I'll Take My Stand was doing. It's the same thing that Who Owns America was doing. And it's a beautiful critique. And so when we look at the world now, and we look at where we are, and um, we look at how hard things are getting. This this reprieve from the hard by the beautiful really does matter. It helps keep your spirits up. It helps understand. Look, this is the long the long view, the long durée, as Fernand Braudel called it in history. Um, we have to understand that we're in the immediate, but there's a bigger picture. And that agrarian critique of industrialization, particularly of people that are now shut in in cities where they, I mean, they're going to be shut into apartments and other things. This is going to be a very trying time for these people. And how beautiful the country, if you just had some land, you could go out in your land, how, that, how nice that would actually be. Um, it's yours. How the sun, the nature would help you through this crisis. Just a little bit of that. And how that would help anyone, the independence that produces, the feeling of community that produces, the homogenous nature of the hobbits compared to mass immigration and other things which are creating all kinds of problems in the world. I mean, part of the reason the Wuhan virus spread so quickly is because of immigration and travel and other things. And it's, it's certainly... Um, Uh, a major part of infectious diseases and the spread of these things. So when you look at this particular piece and you understand what what Tolkien was saying about tradition and uh, community and place and how important that is to the South, I think uh, that is a vital part of the Southern tradition. And I think that um, uh, there's no doubt the author, uh, Garrett Agajanian got it right in that way. So, a wonderful little exposition on the Southern tradition from a different perspective. J.R.R. Tolkien is not you know, usually part of the, uh, of the uh, catalog of Southern writers, and of course he wasn't Southern, but certainly to have this there and have this particular piece uh, is a nice review of what the Southern tradition means overall. And then, of course, we had this piece by Norman Black on Friday, Violence Breeds Violence, which gets into the Vietnam War and American actions uh, in Vietnam and, of course, casualty numbers and other things. But, and it explains this from a way that I think is interesting in that um, American action had a reaction in Vietnam from those who were not necessarily on board with the NVA or the communist government in Vietnam, and this is something that people have known for years, but who eventually fought the Americans or the French, because they simply wanted the invaders out. They simply wanted a country of their own. And I remember years ago, I had a grisly old Vietnam vet in one of my my on-campus courses, and we were talking about Vietnam, and he said, look, The Vietnamese people didn't care what kind of government they had. These were simple, agrarian people. All they wanted was just to be left alone. They didn't want the French. They didn't want the Americans. And all of these governmental positions and things like that, all these things that we think matter, really didn't matter to them. They just wanted to be left alone. And I think Norman does a very nice job in explaining this from a southern position because he brings the war into, and he talks about a family that was faced with essentially the same crisis. The Evans family um, in Missouri, Boone County, Missouri. The Evans family wanted to stay free, clear from the war. They didn't really want to have to deal with this major event that was taking place. They just wanted to continue their life. And the war came to the doorstep, and it did, and it was because of violence. Um, Pleasant Evans was murdered by Union men. And many families in this town were murdered by Union men. So as a result, the sons became Confederate soldiers. Violence bred violence. All these people wanted was the Yankee invaders out of their backyard. It wasn't because they were slave owners. They weren't. It wasn't because they were pro-slavery. They weren't. They were anti-violence. And they saw this as a violent and uncalled for a reprisal. For, I mean, there was no reason for it. And when you put those two... I love comparative history in this way. And you put that, people will sit there and pine uh, for the good old days. Or they will lament... Uh, about uh, the problems with the Vietnam War and how awful it was. I mean, people on the left, oh, gosh, Vietnam was so bad. Look what we did to the poor Vietnamese people. But yet, these Southerners deserved it. When you look at those two issues and you say to yourself, well, wait a second here. I mean, why would one people deserve it and not another? And I think it's because of ideological reasons. They're thinking of things, well, the Vietnamese, maybe they're pro-communist, or maybe we shouldn't be an imperial power. And I mean, I can agree with the imperial power part. But why is one right and the other is not? And these are questions that we need to ask and answer. And I think that Norman does an extremely good job of pointing this out through a comparative perspective one isn't right if the other isn't right. And I really like that for this piece uh, because it it, it raises those questions. Violence breeds violence. There will be a reprisal if you resort to violence for something. Somebody eventually will issue a reprisal in a violent reprisal. And so when we think about issues like this, we think about the American empire, we think about the response to the war or to the secession crisis, which wasn't a war, but the secession crisis by the Union army, which was violence. That was the Union response. It was violence. It didn't have to be. James Buchanan showed it didn't have to be violent. This is why James Buchanan is excoriated by the modern historical profession because James Buchanan did not result... Did not not, uh, respond with violence. The result wasn't violence. With Buchanan's non-response to secession. Okay, we're going to try to work this out. Let's let it be. And there was no fighting. There was no fighting. Even though it was tense, there was no fighting. Men from Fort Sumter are allowed to mingle around Charleston. I mean, nobody attacked them. Uh, When you go down, you look at Pensacola Florida where you had Fort Pickens um, the city of Pensacola state of Florida was telling these men they had to abandon the fort but they didn't go try to shoot at them it wasn't until you had a landing party come in through Lincoln which was actually Fort Pickens was the first occupied fort it happened before Sumter where there was an amphibious landing and it wasn't until that that you had violence because it was a violent response to violence we're going to take this thing by by force and we're going to hold it by force and you're going to like it. Didn't have to be that way. Things could have been settled peacefully. But Lincoln's response was violent and so violence came. Just as the American response in South Vietnam at times was violence and violence came, whether it was from the NVA, which really wasn't active in South Vietnam, or the Viet Cong. These are people that just decided, well, hey, we're we're going to oppose the Yankee invaders, because of violence and what they're doing to our population, whether it was forced removal from their farms or homes or some other violent reprisal. So uh, this is an interesting, again, interesting comparative perspective. Violence breeds violence. Uh, The other pieces of the week, of course, we had um, an interesting essay on John C. Calhoun, and so you have, I think Monday and Wednesday's pieces fit nice together, one on the war and one on Calhoun. This is by uh, Barry Clark. Barry Clark uh, has founded something called the Calhoun Institute, and um, it's an interesting website. He has articles on John C. Calhoun. He runs quite a bit from the Abbeville Institute over there, Uh, but he brings up uh, John Daniel Davidson, who writes at the Federalist, and John Daniel Davidson has a, a strange infatuation with John C. Calhoun, and I, I say a strange infatuation to Calhoun because with Calhoun because Davidson um, hates Calhoun, and of course he thinks Calhoun is a progressive. He thinks Calhoun is a Marxist. He's essentially adopting uh, the idea that uh, Calhoun is the Marx of the master class, which was an old historical argument. Richard Hofstadter. Uh, used quite a long time ago, that Marx was somehow uh, Calhoun was somehow the Marx of the master class. Uh, but he is very critical of Calhoun because he thinks Calhoun is um, is the major problem in America. Um, and this gets into some of the arguments against the Confederacy, and of course, they're all placed at Calhoun's feet, and I don't know how that would work when Calhoun had been dead for over a decade by the time the Confederacy is formed. Um, And of course, Clark states that. Um, And of course, as I said, Davidson says that Calhoun sowed modern progressivism, and he quotes... Harry Jaffa. Who Harry? Anytime you quote Harry Jaffa, you're already running into a problem. Jaffa is a nobody, um, except for the fact that he had a very famous debate with Mel Bradford, and of course that made him famous, and he became this conservative, quote unquote conservative, in the process. And I, I think this is one of the major problems with conservatives. I mean, and you see it. I mean, there are people that almost have the right positions, and I, um, we've talked about several of them on this podcast. They almost have the right positions. Um, And Jaffa says Calhoun's theory was the antithesis of the founders and Abraham Lincoln's understanding of the Constitution. You see this. People say, well, I mean, you're saying these things, but the founders would have disagreed with you. Um, And, of course, Clark says, well, yeah, Calhoun did have a different position than Federalists. Now, of course, it's important to point out here when he talks about the Federalists. He's not talking about real Federalists, which means people that support a federal republic, but the Nationalists that came about because of the ratification of the Constitution. Those that were, of course, in the Philadelphia Convention, they were there. But they were defeated in the Philadelphia Convention. And, of course, when we get the Constitution, the Nationalists become a dominant power. But Calhoun opposed a particular type of nationalist. Calhoun always said he was a Unionist. And even in his when he was a young man, he was a nationalist, but he was a Southern nationalist, not pro-South, but he was a nationalist from the South. And you see, nationalists from the South viewed things differently than did nationalists from the North, and what do I mean by that? Well, Southern nationalists at the time really did view things from a nationalist perspective. They wanted something that was good for all. think back to Calhoun's support for the 1816 tariff, for example. He saw this as good for the Union because the North had been so devastated by the War of 1812, which, of course, was a good war that would uh, support uh, the Union as a whole to get the British off their back. But he thought that the tariff would actually be good for the United States because of that. The problem is... New England nationalists, who are call themselves American nationalists, it's really just a disguised New England nationalism, only wanted things that were good for New England. Their nation was New England, not the United States. The the nation for the South was the United States. Washington was a real nationalist in that way. Calhoun was a real nationalist in that way. When he said things like, look, the Union next to our liberty, most dear, He's saying that the union is very important, but if our liberty is abused, then it's no union at all. We don't need it. So Calhoun was a nationalist in the purest sense. And of course, when that nation no longer was in support of the American nation, but the New England nation, he's often criticized as being a sectionalist. But I don't think you can ever say that about Calhoun. He's not really a sectionalist. He's just saying, look, we have this union. The union is for the benefit and burden of all. If you read his political writings, this is clearly what he says all throughout. And in order to do this, we need to make sure that the laws that we pass are beneficial to all and they burden all equally. And what you're trying to do is not doing that. So he's often viewed as a sectionalist, but he was simply pointing out that you can't abuse the South. Just like the South cannot abuse the North. And there were many in the South who believed that. Look, John Taylor of Caroline was very concerned about the prospects of abuse of the North at the hands of the South. He was concerned about these things. Calhoun was concerned about the growth of executive government because he said, look, what we have here are factions now and all we're going to get is executive government. It's going to destroy the United States. It's going to destroy the Constitution. We can't do this so when you look at what Calhoun thought and what he did, I mean, this is, this is important. And I think that people like Davidson and, of course, Jaffa and other neoconservatives, they get Calhoun completely wrong because they're so fixated on all men are created equal. They're fixated on the proposition nation. They're fixated on that particular part of Calhoun, and they can't get the larger picture. They are just as bad as the social justice warriors who are fixated on those particular issues, which is why I call them, not neoconservatives, but social justice conservatives. You see it with people like Alan Gelzo. Well, it's okay to criticize Southern founders because they own slaves, but Abraham Lincoln, you can't criticize him. Well, I mean, what are you doing there? You're opening the door to criticizing the United States entirely. Because you see Lincoln reinvented the union. I mean, look. He reinvented the Union. So, um, Lincoln is by no means conservative. There's no attachment to the founders there. It was a second founding, as Eric Foner has pointed out in his new book. A second founding. Is that conservative? Is that what we want? Is that what we're trying to conserve as conservatives? This is a very good question. But this attack on the South, of course, is nothing new, and Davison's attack on on Calhoun is nothing new. And you, you look at even the way Southerners are portrayed in films, and I'll get back to the Monday piece in a second, but just talking about Clyde Wilson's piece on Thursday when he gets into the Southern accent and how how that's used as the villain in just about every film. Um, it's an interesting perspective on film. He calls it our speech. Um and he points out some films that are good in this way and some films that aren't. Uh, one of the ones that I found interesting, he points out the new uh, the new Midway film, um, which outside of the computer graphics was absolutely horrible. I mean, it was okay in that way, but the the acting was, was corny. Uh, there were, I mean, the Southerners in it weren't really Southerners. They were just good Americans, and they showed it that way. So... Um, I mean, this is where you get these things. The, the southern accent is the bad guy, or it's played down. There are some good good films that it's it's good. I mean they they do a nice job with it. He also is highly critical of the film W about George W. Bush. Um and he's I've read this before. He's done this part before with uh, with George Bush, or I've seen him write this in other places where um, he's very critical of this particular film. Josh Brolin playing George W. Bush, he said, that's a horrible choice because Brolin is too good-looking to be George W. Bush, um, too masculine to be George W. Bush. Um, and so, but you have this, again, this attack, and you look at... Uh, he asks a question, why is the recent... Factory does a serial killer from Buffalo, New York, have a Southern accent? Come to think of it, he says, "Why do murderers and vicious gang leaders always have Southern accents in movies and television? When they make movies about Ted Kaczynski, Timothy McVeigh, and Ted Bundy, will they have Southern accents? Will they make a biopic biopic glorifying Bill Clinton? Will he have his natural Southern accent? You know, so is that going to happen? I mean, I think Clinton will look left, like Bill Clinton still in a way. Um, and there was a actually a interesting film about uh it's a miniseries about ted kaczynski it just uh i can't remember the title of it but i watched it It was very good and kaczynski didn't have a southern accent he showed him as the uh crazy environmentalist he was living out in the, in the middle of nowhere uh, when i say crazy environmentalist i mean not talking about someone who just wants to preserve the environment environment because it's god's creation and you're trying to maintain what god has but that he wants to bomb people over his little shack in the woods so uh it's different, um, but um, I, I did like this piece. I mean, so we've got one more in this series. Next week will be our last installment of, of Clyde Wilson's A Southerner's Movie Guide. Part 15 is the last installment, and then we're going to be doing something else. Clyde has got another serial that he's going to be uh, putting out. It's on Southern literature, Southern poetry. So it's going to be very good, so um, that'll be fun, but I want to wrap up with Phil Lee's piece published on Monday Uh, The Washington Post, you know, published some more. The title is All the Fake News is Fit to Print, which is the Washington Post. And he gets into uh, a a back and forth with um, Cortland Malloy from the Washington Post, where he is very critical of Phil Lee in a speech that he gave to a Confederate roundtable. And of course, in this speech, Uh, Lee brings up a Mississippi legislator named John Harris who supported $10,000 for a Confederate monument. And Harris, of course, is black, and he and five other black legislators voted yay to support the monument. And, of course, Malloy says that um, the only reason they did this, this is what Malloy says, quote, Harris's speech was a compromise effort to get more white legislators who oppose a newly drafted Mississippi Constitution, which disfranchised black voters with a poll tax and other requirements. And when the Confederate statue that Harris had voted for was erected, there was no doubt in anyone's mind what it symbolized. So Lee says it was true, it is true that Harris opposed the formation of a constitutional convention to replace the 1868 carpetbag Mississippi Constitution, but there was no newly drafted Constitution at the time. Moreover, the statue bill was a carve out of larger funding from a relief bill for disabled Confederates and the destitute families of deceased veterans. His speech was a moving explanation of why he wanted $10,000 from the gross funding to be applied to a statue. Well, nobody can rule out the possibility that Harris is trying to influence legislators to vote against the Constitutional Convention. The argument is speculative. Since Harris is merely showing a preference between two applications of money appropriated specifically for Confederate veterans and their families, it seems more logical to take his words at face value. And Lee continues, this is devastating. He says, finally, Malloy mentioned the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court ruling that legitimized the separate but equal race doctrine as another stain on the South. Although the case involved an 1892 Louisiana incident, Justice Henry Brown of Michigan cited a Boston precedent upholding segregated schools. Six of the other justices that joined him in the 7-1 decision were from the states that were union lo- loyal during the Civil War. The lone dissenter was from Kentucky. So Plessy v. Ferguson is a creation essentially of the North and upholding that particular position. The forgotten part of Jim Crow. So, look, all of these things, all of this stuff is just par for the course when you look at how the South is portrayed. The South is always the bad guy. The South is always the the enemy. And, of course, violence breeds violence. But what is the South in this new world that we're going to, what can the South, what can the Southern tradition offer this new world we're going to be facing in six months, three months, two months, as all these things begin to deteriorate? As quarantine takes effect and more people are shut in, what does the Southern tradition offer? And perhaps we're going to focus on that more in the future on the website. We'll see. Until next time, good day.